There's a new pencil case feeling to this edition of Confect Corner. As the leaves turn from green to brown and a chill creeps into the air, we're back from the beach and discussing the plans and projects that will define autumn. We'll debut a new novel for you to read by the fire. We'll pull up a chair in a new restaurant in London's Soho that is a revival of a much-loved seafood gem that indulges guests with an interior that embraces sumptuous maximalism. We'll speak to a fashion designer about creating sustainable pieces that will become a cornerstone of your wardrobe and not your carbon footprint. And we'll celebrate the humble fig as the unsung hero of autumn. This is Confect Corner and I'm your host, Sophie Grove. I started creating these kind of silk transparent dresses, kind of using figurative elements. I was cutting them at the bias, which means you basically cut the fabric at a diagonal to give it a really beautiful drape. But also I wanted to include a lot of panels to the pattern cutter's dismay. I like the idea that you would pull the different figurative elements into these different panels and you could use the panels as this kind of canvas for a piece of art. It was quite a colourful space, you know, in more ways than one, in so much as it was full of very sort of whimsical, playful, chintzy designs, you know, from red gingham tablecloths to fishing nets draped over the walls to a, a gold Poseidon statue in there. And it would encourage and attract everybody from passing tourists to local media executives having power lunches to people having sort of, you know, illicit affairs. Societally speaking, sci-fi has seemed like a domain for men. But then I think to somebody like Octavia Butler, who was very much a science fiction author, a black woman, and my favourite book of all time, Wild seed she plays with so many different things and so many different stories as we go through this world with her and I think I kind of took the lead from there that the story is very much like myself you can't really categorize me I'm worldly and otherworldly all at the same time Welcome to this episode of Confect Corner. I'm your host, Sophie Grove, in London. I'm joined once more by Marcella Palak in Zurich and by Gillian Tobias here in the studio with me. Hello to both. Good to be back in the studio after a blissful summer. Hi, Marcella. Hello, hello from Over Zurich. Over there in Zurich. <laughs> um, well, as usual, we'd like to start each episode with something that's caught our attention in recent weeks. Marcella, you've been summering in Switzerland. What do you have for us this month? So I spend a lot of time in the mountains, from the Austrian to the Swiss ones, as the nights were very fresh and cool. It was beautiful there. So one thing I have for you, which was really outstanding. So you might know that after a long hike, you can get quite hungry with the fresh mountain air. And to arrive at a wooden, small wooden restaurant, Gavlocho, above a small, beautiful turquoise lake called Gavlok, not far from Maloya, it's already very promising. But when I entered the chalet and I discovered 10 or even more freshly made homemade cakes, <laughs> I was absolutely surprised. And this was an exceptional sensation, an unexpected sensation. So no way to leave without tasting one or even two of those amazing cakes. In the middle of nowhere in this valley called Valforno, which means, by the way, Val oven. So maybe you think, okay, this was a marketing idea. You don't have to feel guilty, Marcella, because you've hiked all the way there and you'll hike all the way back so you can indulge exactly. in your one, one or two. It sounds yeah. like something from Hans Christian Andersen, you know, this mountainous cottage with all these amazing 
cakes, kind of yeah. freshly baked. <laughs> what happens next? Gillian, you're just back from the Mediterranean. Tell us about what you've discovered. A lovely time in the Mediterranean, but mostly that was swimming in turquoise bays. And it's not where I discovered my little gem that I'm going to be talking about today. Back in London, because it's September, I get very, very nostalgic for my school days. September will always, always be back to school. And so I decided to do a pilgrimage to my favorite stationery shop in London. It's called Present and Correct. It's founded by two graphic designers who have a passion for all the accoutrements to writing and drawing and designing. And it has been described, this shop, as a sort of mix between madman and Danish design because it's very retro. They go hunting and gathering all over the world for all those beautiful things we remember from our school days, the old-fashioned erasers, the crayons, the pencil sharpeners. They have a new a new space just around the corner from the British Museum. Very kind of pure, minimal, woody, Danish-looking design. Neil Whittington, one of the founders, described it as a bit of a pick and mix because it is like going to a candy store. And the beauty of it is they search out, they go to all the stationery fairs, so you're going to get the most beautiful handcrafted stationery and coloured pencils. But they also go to all the markets and flea markets and they collect vintage items, vintage airmail envelopes, vintage labels from offices and telex paper. So there's this beautifully curated area where they have one-of-a-kind finds and then people then start to know about them and they send in finds that they've had. So it's very, very special. It's very well curated. It has now a cult following. And the beauty of it is if you can get yourself to London, go on this little adventure into the store. But also they have a beautiful website where you can see all the items they have and and you can buy them online as well. Wow. Well, if you didn't have an urge for a new pencil case in September, I'm sure you do now. And I think the more digital our world gets, the more special these accessories to writing become. And I think actually a beautiful pen and a beautiful piece of paper will influence your creativity. I'm a firm believer of that. And Sophie, you still have the glow of a summer holiday. What is your discovery? Well, I've just come back from southwest France on the Atlantic coast in the Basque region, Pays Basque. It's an amazing place, just with this great architecture, kind of green timber and red timber houses, and this real sense of identity. It feels a little bit Spanish because you're right on the border. So I've discovered this amazing Basque linen, which is stripes and very thick, almost like kind of robust linen, which I think derives from an agricultural cover for the back of livestock but it has emerged into this amazing tradition of of weaving and it's tablecloths and beautiful beautiful espadrilles and deck chair covers you see everywhere we had lunch in Biarritz in the Palais Hotel and they had this amazing pink linen with red stripes in the cafe and then when I was around I just kept on picking up pieces and towels and there's one brand called Artiga which is quite established and they have a shop in Paris but it was established about I think 16 years ago beautiful quality and just this timeless sort of sense that you'll have these things forever and then I nipped into the factory of another one called Latigue in Saint-Jean-de-Luz which is a beautiful sort of 16th 17th century resort on the coast 
And it's just this wonderful emporium of stripes and you can just pick up these beautiful um, tablecloths. So my luggage was very heavy <laughs> when, when I re-entered the UK a few days ago and I've got quite a few pieces I can't wait to use. It's wonderful that they're still making them and it's not being replaced by Zara Home and all the new home homeware stores that seem to proliferate everywhere, that they still have this very distinctive making of fabrics in southwest France. It does. I mean, one of the brands, Jean Vier, which is a real household name in that region, has taken some production to Portugal. But the quality is still so amazing. And all the hotels we went to had, even the new ones, had employed this stripe somewhere. So you can feel that it's... And it has such an identity, but it's so subtle that you feel like it does just have that enduring sense that it will, you know, be handed down from grandmothers to daughters and put into new projects. So it is that lovely sense of identity, but really my cup of tea, I love the aesthetic. So I'm going to have to go back or just start <laughs> picking bits and pieces up and using it because, I, I mean, I love nothing more than a tablecloth. But then there was, I have to say, some wipe-downable wax cloth ones, which mm. I avoided studiously because it's against my philosophy. They were very tasteful versions, but it's not happening in my house. <laughs> <laughs> there are some brands which manage to unite responsible production and innovative design. One such clothing company is Ellis, founded by Ellis Solomon. Ellis intrigues customers with its use of unique graphic prints and interesting silhouettes, and has been applauded for its low environmental impact. Comfex Sophie Monahan Coombs went to their East London studio to find out more. This is a piece that um, kind of represents something that we really like to do in terms of our figurative print. So this one has lips that are upside down at the top of the dress and then you can kind of see some fabric ruching at the bottom. And it's called the Lane Ankle Dress and it's designed after activist and cyclist Amelia Lane. She was a really amazing woman and we try and kind of reference activists from the past, people who were whistleblowers who maybe are lesser known and that's something that really I like to do and so this actually the bottom half of the print is collaging a dress designed by Alice Belgrave and she basically designed this dress which incorporated bloomers into the bottom of it and basically was trying to transform how ladies cycled so instead of just wearing a dress and kind of being quite uncomfortable the bloomers would help to just make it a more comfortable ride so we just kind of collaged these two ladies together. Alice Solomon is the designer behind the clothing brand Ellis. I'm at her East London studio surrounded by her signature printed pieces, many of which are made by collaging different images in interesting and unusual ways. She's used the technique for a while. It was something I found when I was at uni. It was my final collection and it was kind of something that came towards the end of it actually I had been working on all these kind of like voluminous shapes and um, trying to find my feet and who I am as a designer and then I started creating these kind of silk transparent dresses with kind of using figurative elements and I quite liked I was cutting them at the bias which means you basically cut the fabric at a diagonal to give it a really beautiful drape but also I wanted to include a lot of panels to the pattern cutter's dismay. And basically, I liked the idea that you would pull the different figurative elements into these different panels and you could use the panels as this kind of canvas for a piece of art that was just kind of a blown up, you know, existing image. But when put together, it created something entirely new. 
Inspiration for these prints might come from anywhere. Ellis may find an image she likes in a book or take a photo during a walk in the park and then layer these together. One source is her growing collection of vintage magazines. I generally search on eBay or I go and look in um, kind of old magazine shops for great kind of old finds. I love magazines from the 30s. They're all black and white. They've got a really nice quality to the image. And I also love to search out nudist magazines because they have really great figurative elements to them. So you can have a nude and you can take all sorts of different parts of that and collage it with other things. So that's something I look for. But yeah, definitely kind of like bidding on eBay. And I'm definitely in competition with with some other people sometimes. And like I win some, I lose some. But yeah, no, that's something that I enjoy. And then there's a little um, magazine shop in Finsbury Park that sells old vintage pornos. Some of them are a bit kind of niche and maybe you would avoid, but they also have a stack of them that they offer to students for collaging. So sometimes they give me some of those. And then they also have a section of vintage erotic magazines, which again, are really great for collaging. (laughs) I don't know if this is radio appropriate, but it's a really great place to start for me as a way of kind of creating these figurative collages. There's a real mix of those who are featured on the clothes, from the faceless body parts of people from risque magazines to images of female activists who were revolutionary in their time. And new designs branch out to include forays into different fabrics like chiffon or silk or stripy prints. Underpinning all of this, however, is a commitment to sustainability. We are a vegan brand, so everything's a recycled kind of our pet silk, which is from recycled plastic bottles, or we worked with Econil, which they basically have an initiative where they're going to look for fishing nets in the sea and then they repurpose those to um, become new fabrications. We work with um, manufacturers who recycle all offcuts from production. We work with I think four or five small family-run factories in Slovenia. And in Slovenia, their legislation is that you have to recycle all offcuts from production, which is pretty incredible because in the UK, firstly, that is not a thing. It's very difficult to ask your factories to do something that's different from how they um, how they generally do their practices. And so to try and convince a factory to work in the way that you want to work is more difficult than, you know, working with factories that already have kind of amazing ways of working. So we've been very lucky in that in that regard. And things that are difficult, I mean, doing placement prints, sometimes you have to be really kind of engineered about how you put the placements together to try and reduce the wastage. Because even if you are recycling it, you still don't want to be throwing away rolls of fabric or even big, you know, panels of fabric. You want to be throwing away smaller pieces. So we try and do our lay plans, which is how you kind of lay out things for cutting before it's made into a garment in the most environmentally friendly way possible. That's a tricky one. No matter the story of the collages that make up these dreamlike clothes or the fabric on which they are printed, the final designs can guarantee to always offer something unexpected, inviting us to take a closer look. A report there by Sophie Monahan-Coons. You're listening to Confet Corner. Next, we're off to London Soho, which is home once again to the maximalist old glamour seafood restaurant Manzi's. The original venue opened in 1928 off Leicester Square and ran for more than half a century before shutting down in 2006 after years of decline. 
Now in a new location, tucked away in one of Soho's tiny alleyways, Manzi's is back with its iconic design, courtesy of Fabled Studio, the famed practice who also worked on some of London's top restaurants such as Noble Rot, Soccer and Dinner by Heston Blumenthal. Convex contributor Fernando Augusto Pacheco spoke to Stephen Saunders from Fable Studio about Manzi's and what it represents to the identity of Soho. Well, I think it's somewhere that you feel that you can spend a bit of time getting dressed up for and make a bit more of an event to go to. It's not just a quick dinner, it's something that you prepare and get ready for and feel special going to. And, and the staff there are fantastic in sort of looking after you in that old school service kind of way, so it works. And I think one of them is called Daniel Craig. I like that. He is called Daniel he Craig. He gave me yes. his card and I was like, oh, oh my God. You know? <laughs> yeah, the, the GM, Daniel Craig, he's a great guy. Stephen, of course, you've done quite a lot of restaurants here in London, in other countries as well, in Sydney. But with Manzis, I mean, there was one, one Manzis before. So how did you approach that? I mean, of course, there's some old elements to it. But did you say, OK, but it needs to be a little bit different or did you really did everything as it used to be? So, I mean, yeah, Manzi's was a, it's an old institution of a mm. restaurant in London. It was there from, I think, sort of circa 1928 to 2006. It was about 87 years old, the restaurant was, when it closed. And it was um, a restaurant that really didn't leave much of a visual mark in the world in so much as any uh, historical photos of the interior. There was only images of the exterior that we could find. So taking on board the name of Manzi's, we really wanted to get under the skin of what Manzi's meant and what it was to a lot of people and with no visual aids of what the old interiors looked like we sort of we were a little bit stumped until one day we came across this book called Memories of Manzi's. It was an amazing book written by the author who had never been to the restaurant. He wrote the book after the restaurant closed but he recreated these accounts of the restaurant vicariously through interviewing past patrons and he's asking them you know what they were eating, you know how the place felt, what it sort of looked like and it it was quite a colourful space, you know, in more ways than one, in so much as it was full of very sort of whimsical, playful, chintzy designs, you know, from red gingham tablecloths to fishing nets draped over the walls to a, a gold Poseidon statue in there, and these mermaids proliferated around. So he had no lack or amount of material to draw from, as well as understanding how the place made you feel. And I think that was important to understand sort of what the past patrons, who they were and what they were sort of doing. And it would encourage and attract everybody from passing tourists to local media executives having power lunches to people having sort of, you know, illicit affairs. Very Soho. Very Soho, yeah. <laughs> Above the old restaurant, they had 17 bedrooms as well that were also sort of available to hire by the hour. So if you wish to carry on your wrongdoings, you could. So we thought, what a great space. It's an escapism, it's playful, it's that kind of debauched hedonism that we wanted to bring to Manzi's the restaurant as well. So it gave us licence to, you know, really go to town with this. And we didn't hold back. You know, we wanted this to be a very over-the-top, immersive, fun, playful space that you can feel glamorous within. And I think the two spaces, the ground floor represented the restaurant, those sort of pale sea blues, sort of azures, and this sort of whitewashed cafe vibe that came through from one of the references from the book, whereas a couple of the past patrons, they reminded the author of the look tags from the film Casablanca. 
and they were dining in the, in Rick's Cafe in Casablanca. So we looked at that and thought, wow, you've got this lovely sort of reference to Casablanca, that romance that comes from that book and sort of that aesthetic of Rick's Cafe. Let's bring that into our influence of what Manzi's was and just let that just soften the whole space. And it's sort of, we brought that through the ground floor and as you come upstairs, it becomes a lot more intimate and sort of decadent, lots of sort of big heavy satin teal swags and drapes and detailing. Our mermaids come to life upstairs, sat around our cocktail bar in the middle of the room it's an experience it's an entertaining place to be in it's funny you, you use the word <coughs> softening and even there's an area outside which i think i see this more and more in london and i have to say the area where it is it's a kind of slightly narrow kind of alleyway in soho i mean there was not much there before it was a, a bunch of offices but you did change the atmosphere of the place as you said soften the little streets there for sure and i think you know if anything we had the opportunity to create a new landmark in Soho, which, you know, is a very rare opportunity. It was a very unused, unloved alleyway. And, you know, there was a vision to actually, look, we've got this amazing space, but it is very hidden from the passing guest. How do we start to announce that to sort of people in the area? From the large neon Manzi's sign that we added to the big outdoor terrace, I think it's one of the biggest terraces in Soho, actually, out there. It just really brought that space back to life because you're between, you know, Greek Street and Frith Street, two very vibrant spaces. And then you had this little down at hill sorry for its self space in the middle and we thought well let's bring some color and some life to that so it was great and a great visual from the top of soho square as well we must talk about the mural when you go up the <laughs> stairs i mean it's incredible of course i had to take a picture when i was there indeed so another sort of undertone that we had to the design was just to bring a bit of ruggedness into it as well and we looked to the uh, ernest hemingway's old man in the sea mm. and the old man's battle with the marlin on his fishing boat we wanted to bring that into the entrance area so we've got our big taxidermy marlin on the wall representing his catch and then we had this mural painted up the stairway that brings you from the ground floor up to the top floor and we work with a fantastic artist called Mark Sands who we've worked with on previous projects he does beautiful work and he painted that for us so that's it's a striking transition from ground floor up to first floor what's your relationship perhaps with the people in charge of the restaurant i mean do you have creative freedom do you have a lot of chats with them perhaps some even disagreements and then you say you know what this might not work leave it with me because i know best <laughs> or I'm, I'm curious about that side of what you do usually i mean very much with manzi's in particular we kind of define the brief so they had the name they had the blessing of the old manzi's family to mm-hmm. use that name from the original restaurant and we sort of picked that up and said look if we're going to do this we really need to understand what Manzi's was. And as soon as we got under the skin of it, as we did, and sort of create this new aesthetic and this new incarnation of Manzi's and presented that back to them, they were just like, I love it. Just get on with it. Keep going. And sort of we worked with them creatively, sort of checking in along the road, just sort of looking at materiality coming together, samples, detailing as we sort of went through the bathroom, sort of some of the more playful elements in there. You know, they're a hands-on client and the CEO that I work very closely with, Baton Barisha, He likes to be involved as part of the design process and sort of work with us. Yeah, it's collaborative in terms of the final look and feel, but the overall big concept is something that we deliver, we create. One thing I feel perhaps about your restaurants, including Manzi's, and if I may give another example, Noble Rot in Soho, they're very different, but there's a sense of they've lived through some time, that they're not brand new. There's a place. Do you know what I mean? It's a place that like, oh yeah, the locals must have come here all the time, even (laughs) though it opened yesterday. I don't know how you do that. We are a studio that deliberately does not have a design aesthetic. We Mm -hmm. don't have a look. 
it allows us to take on so many more different creative briefs from clients such as Manzi's to earlier at the start of this year we finished a duck and waffle in Edinburgh to soccer with Claude Bosey in South Audley Street in Mayfair. 2015 we did the first Noble Rock back in Lambs Conduit Street and the guys got in touch, we read their magazine, we went to one of their events said look we're looking to open a restaurant. We were looking to put our money where our mouth is and sort of really you know bring that experience that they talk about in the magazine of demystifying and taking the, excuse my French, bullshit out of fine wine mm. and making it available for everybody. They found a site in Lambs Conduit Street that was an old wine bar before. It had been a wine bar since the early 70s. And they said, look, we're looking at this site. And we came to have a look. And it was near our offices at the time when we were in Hatton Garden. We just walked in and said, do you know what? You really don't need to do a lot to this space. You could see it was an old Georgian townhouse. You could see that it had lived a life before. It was all very wonky, very crooked. And I was like, Dan, Mark, all we need to do is just smarten this up. I'm going to get the lighting right. I'm going to take all of the ceiling lights off. I'm going to bring the colour to the walls using the illustrations from your magazine, the punches of colour and the modern wine art, not that old fusty wine art. It's modern wine illustration pieces. And we're just going to refresh the bar. We spent very little money and I think it just resonated with the brand that they had. And I think you don't always need to be ripping everything out and starting again. I think with Noble Wine in particular on Fifth Street with Soho Entity, that was the old Gay Hussar. Mm -hmm. um, it had been there for 30 years, an old Hungarian restaurant, which was the launch pad of New Labour, Peter Manderson, Tony Blair, used to have their meetings there on campaign trails. So we thought, again, this building's lived the life. You know, we should show its history, show its bones, and embrace that and not try and change it. And I think projects like that don't require you to, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater. It is just embracing what it is and it's it's right for the brand. I don't think Noble Rock should ever be too showy. It's kind of just making everybody feel comfortable. And personally, I, those group of restaurants are my go-to restaurants out of everything that we do, my favourite restaurants in London. Every time I go there, I get the chance to drink a life-changing wine and have sensational food. So what more could you want? That was Stephen Saunders from Fable Studios speaking with Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Manzi's is open now in London's Soho. Gillian, there's something quite special about iconic old glamour restaurants such as these. Do you have a favourite? Oh, I do, but I was devastated when it closed a couple of years ago. I adored Le Caprice in London, just tucked away behind the Ritz. And it's funny what makes a place like that so special. I mean, it was a favourite of Elizabeth Taylor, Princess Diana, Mick Jagger. But it was very low-key. Like, you never felt it was showy. The wonderful thing about it, people would always have the same table. You had the regulars. There would usually be paparazzi outside. Food was always good. Not exceptional, but you knew you could get your salmon fish cakes there and the most perfect frite in the salad. But it was always an occasion. And you would always have to start with a glass of champagne because you went to Le Caprice feeling that sense of a special day. And it was just wonderful. But what about you? I love the old world charm of Jay Shiki's, the seafood restaurant that's kind of pre-theatre goers and post-theatre goers haunt, really. I think it's a 19th century origins and it's just got this wonderful sense of kind of atmosphere but also the staff have been there for so many mm. years and they really know people and you can kind of see sort of liaisons happening in corners and wonderful sense of drama and I've been there so many years it's got memories for me so I think that's a really lovely little spot in London but there are so many and mm. we need to kind of support them because these little spaces that have so much identity and have that creaky kind of wonderful 
sense of kind of pre-renovated charm need to stay rather than kind of have to be revived like Manzi's, which is really nice. But it is actually not the original. <laughs> so they've done a really wonderful job, according to Fernando, who loved it and the sense of kind of wildly sort of indulgent decor. <laughs> like but it is, it is the stories when you say you've you made your own memories at, at Cheeky's and it is the stories at the table and that's why it's so wonderful to people watch at places like that because you get your regulars and you get your new people and, and your imagination can run wild because memories are made in restaurants and I think that's a wonderful thing about places like that. And Marcella, we know you have Cronenhall there in, in Zurich which is such a wonderful storied place with great pieces of art on the walls and this wonderful kind of actually unrivaled bar in a sense this art deco space tell me do you have anything for us further afield yeah i mean italy is full of those restaurants as you know and i think it shows us also how important it is where you eat not just what you eat because mostly the focus is on the gourmet cuisine and I think like cultivated place with beautiful furniture with a nice light and with art or whatever on the walls with photos of all the guests I think it gives just a very very nice atmosphere to enjoy your meal and to sit longer than two hours like many new restaurants force you to reservate the table for a certain time from 8 to 10 I think this is so stupid because maybe we open another bottle or we eat more dessert so like a nice interior is so important and I have something for you which is one of my favorite in Torino in Italy it's called Il Gatto Nero and when you enter you see all these pictures of black cats it's amazing I don't know exactly the history behind it but then you enter a big hall and it's fantastic and the food is great so you can really spend a whole evening there or then you love Casablanca, as I know, and maybe you, you know Taverne du Dauphin, a fish restaurant, exactly the, where the harbour is, and this is also, it's fantastic. I eat so much, just only I can stay longer and watch the people, what they order and what they talk and how they look. Kelechi Okafor is a force to be reckoned with. From screenwriting to directing, Kelechi was known in the film industry, but it wasn't until her Sally from HR series that she became a known name providing commentary on society. Now she adds another role to her roster, author. Her debut, Edge of Here, explores eight short stories of womanhood probing the lives we lead now and in the future, from grief to love to friendships. Kalechi finds roots in our current reality and guides the reader over their boundaries of imagination in a transformative way. Confection tributor Steph Chungu spoke to Kalechi about what convinced her to write fiction. But before that, Kalechi started by reading a sample of one of her stories featured in her debut, The Other Man. Poetry night, four months ago. Eve had taken a chair with her on stage for her performance this time. She decided that she hated the way she swayed stiffly when reading her poems, if she was standing up. Looking in the mirror in the days leading up to the poetry night, Eve had observed herself. Straight. That was the only word that came to mind. 
Athletic, yes. Ironically, her years of yoga and contemporary dance had somehow set her posture in such a way that the only word to describe it was straight. She secretly envied the women she would see who seemed so much looser than she did, who seemed to flow effortlessly in their movements. In the videos people would share of her performances online, Eve had a way of ignoring the comments praising her eloquence and talent, but instead honing in on descriptions that highlighted her stiff sway. Looking like a twig blowing in the wind, she mocked herself. She had told her therapist she would stop speaking to herself in this way. Then again, therapists generally couldn't really want you to stop all of your self-sabotaging behaviours because surely then they would be out of a job. Eve felt like this justification bought her some time in her life for a bit more negative self-talk. As she waited for her performance to begin, Eve was quietly grateful that she could not see the audience due to the spotlight facing the stage and the way that entertainment pods were constructed these days. Clear plastic casings, varying in size, depending on how many people they needed to accommodate. The pods at this performance night, where Eve was reading her poetry, could accommodate around six people in each, from what she could see. At the bottom of each entertainment pod were two big tubes, one tube bringing in sanitised air and the other taking out dispelled, used air. The pods could be booked for family who lived together, for work colleagues and for friends who'd had their biochips scanned as being free of any infections. As much as Eve felt like the pods had impeded on her dating life throughout the years, she did appreciate that random people couldn't accidentally spill their drinks on her now at a reading or a night out. Kalechi Okafor, welcome to Midori House. You are a screenwriter, director, podcaster, social commentator, and to add to your many, many roles in your roster, an author. Woo! Congratulations <laughs> on you. Edge of Here. It's so unique to have a short stories as your debut novel. Why did you decide to do short stories instead of a full-length novel? I don't know. I think that I'm so used to talking in short form. And I think that there's such a craft, there's such a skill to telling short stories that I don't think it's honoured enough. You know, if we look at social media and the way that our attention spans are depleting, you know, they are they are deteriorating. <laughs> so, <laughs> so even when I make videos on social media, I know that those videos have to be below six minutes because even sometimes you want to keep it below four minutes because I understand that you only have people's attention for a short amount of time and so when it came to you know what I wanted to write I wanted to invite people into various worlds that are all part of one universe and that way they're introduced to me I'm introduced to them so when we go into the full-length novel we already know each other that's pretty. That's a pretty genius <laughs> idea, actually. What was the process like for writing short stories? Because it's so condensed, it's so packed. You have to pack a lot in, but you don't want to overwhelm the reader. But you don't want to take a lot out, so you don't want to underwhelm the reader. What was the process like for, like, for you? Um, it was great kind of collaboration and dance choreography between myself and my editor Sarita Domingo because in my head I've told the story and Sarita would come back and say okay so what were they thinking here and what's happening here so I had to really learn and hone in on 
just because the world exists in my head, I have to make sure that other people can see that world and feel that world with their hearts. So providing more information than I thought was previously necessary. And yeah, it really, really paid off in that sense. I think that, in fact, I was giving too little information in certain parts and having an editor that was encouraging me to say, you know, go a bit further, give us a little bit more. And then after Sarita would say that, I would then say, I think that's enough. Like, that's as about as much as I feel that people should have. Because social commentary, you talk about things, social injustice, social inequity, you talk about all of these things online and in the way that I do. So being able to tell stories in this way meant that I could talk about the societal things, the dynamics that I still think that we should pay attention to while sort of wrapping them in the lives and the stories of these phenomenal black women um, that I think that we should all have the pleasure of meeting. There are elements of sci-fi in the novel with the future and the and the tech and the headsets. Is Edge of Here a sci-fi novel or did you just want to just delve into that to that genre just just for this? It's such an interesting thing because Dr. Anne-Marie Imaphodon, who I greatly admire, one of the quotes that she sent in after reading Edge of Here was that, you know, she said, finally, a new era of sci-fi is here. And I said, my G, yeah, yeah. You know, I was... <laughs> I was <laughs> I was so I was so touched I was so kind of encouraged by reading that because maybe what it is is a new era of sci-fi I think that historically speaking um societally speaking sci-fi has seemed like a domain for men specifically white men so they would dictate what is seen as sci-fi or science fiction and what isn't but then I think to somebody like Octavia Butler who was very much a science fiction author a black woman and my favourite book of all time, Wild Seed, that is sci-fi, but she plays with so many different things and so many different stories as we go through this world with her. And I think I kind of took the lead from there that the story is very much like myself. You can't really categorise me. I'm worldly and otherworldly all at the same time, as I believe that a lot of us are. And it's about leaning into that. What other way would I be able to talk about what's happening societally without also showing what happened in the past and what could happen in the future? You meld all of that together and, yeah, essentially what you do get is science fiction. I want to delve into a couple of stories. I won't allude to what happens, but I want to get into... <laughs> I think the biggest one that affected me was the uterus star story. Oh. It does weave in a lot of current events. I feel that the Roe versus Wade decision in yes. the United States was definitely reflected in the Utah Star story, considering the Aaliyah ended up in mm-hmm. the story after successfully being the top star of the social media app. And it's basically, spoiler alert for everyone <laughs> listening, she ends up on a breeding farm that is controlled by the government. And it's it's crazy how her friend literally has to go to a doctor that's defected from the government mm-hmm. um, to try and save her. Yes. And I just wanted to know, what was your process? I mean, obviously, like the Roe versus Wade decision in the United States like, affected a lot of us, like mm-hmm. especially outside of the US who are not in that position compared Mm -hmm. to the women and the people in the United States. I wanted to know what was your thought processing Aaliyah's story in Mm. Utah Star? I'm so glad that Roe v. Wade came up for you straight away because I promise you the day that I heard about the you know overturning Roe v. Wade I said whoa the ways in which governmental structures are able to legislate over our wombs that is wild what if and I went <gasps> 
that was it. That was the moment that I then uterus star came to my mind. It was just the day that I heard about Roe v. Wade being overturned. That was the day I started writing uterus star because I just wanted to present a kind of heightened version of what we could see taking place as part of legislature. I wanted to show that this is literally where we are headed um, when you know, it might seem covert. And I feel like in certain regards, we already see those kind of things happening. We see, you know, in terms of Margaret Atwood and The Handmaid's Tale, like all of that is already there. We are already pondering. We are already rather preoccupied with what will the future hold for the uterus of a person if the state can decide what they are able to do with it or private companies even can decide what they're able to do with it. So that's really what I wanted to play with. And it's not far-fetched because historically speaking, when we think about the transatlantic slave trade, black women's bodies were legislated over, well, black people's bodies across the board were legislated over and it meant that they were forcefully made to, uh, for want of a better term, breed for the purposes of chattel slavery. So this is what I mean about like taking the past, the present, the future and saying, can, can you not see that we are literally at the edge of here? All of the things, there's nothing new under the sun. It just happens in very different ways. Finally, What do you hope your readers will learn or feel when reading Edge of Here? I hope that the readers of Edge of Here feel loved because I was very particular about not kind of filling all of this with trauma and just like bloodshed and all of these things. While we know that those things are very prevalent in society, I wanted Edge of Here to be a a soft call to action where it's like we know that these things are happening. It's almost like have this beautiful, loving elixir before we have to then, you know, face the world. This beautiful, loving elixir that fills you with sensuality, that fills you with love, that primarily, hopefully, fills you with hope. So then you can look at the world feeling stronger, more hopeful, more loved, and knowing that you are love and being able to then, you know, do the things that are required for of you in a society that, you know, is struggling. That was Kalechi Okafor speaking to Steph Chongu. Edge of Here is published by Trapeze Publishing. You're listening to Comfort Corner. And it's time for our final thought. As green leaves begin to turn to gold and September arrives, writer Nicole Douglas Morris has penned a love letter to figs. Let's have a listen to her essay. The fig is a very secretive fruit, wrote D.H. Lawrence, folded upon itself, its flowering forever unseen. Lawrence refers to the fact that the fig is an enclosed inflorescence, that is, a cluster of flowers and seeds turned inwards within a bulb. This remarkable configuration means the fig is less of a mere fruit and more of a mystery to be unravelled. With 80 million years of history, it's surrounded by a remarkable amount of folklore, Figs and their trees have been a source of reverence, symbolism and veneration, far before this process was known to humankind. Now a chic ice cream flavour, the fig leaf itself had biblical beginnings. In the Bible, Adam and Eve sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons once they realised they were naked in the Garden of Eden. Meanwhile, the ficus religiosa is enshrined in Buddhism after Siddhartha Gautama is said to have meditated under one such tree until he reached enlightenment, thus becoming the Buddha. As I ruminate on these strange, ancient plants, I realise that fig trees reside in some of my most salient memories. Sweatily arriving at the Angkor Wat ruins in Cambodia, 18 and high on adventure, 
and finding its temples surreally engulfed in the roots of a gargantuan ficus bengalensis. Sun freckled and in love for the first time, motorbiking on dirt paths across an island in the Indian Ocean's Andamans, past coastal forests made up of towering fig trees, on a difficult day last summer, presenting my boyfriend with a single plump fig, a peace offering of sorts. Given the fig's omnipresence in world religions, indigenous belief systems and traditional medicines, it makes sense that it's one of the oldest fruits to be cultivated by man. With 880 species recorded, the ficus survived asteroid impacts and climate changes that wiped even dinosaurs off our planet. The succulent crop was thus likely an integral part of our early human ancestors' diets, and most of our closest primate relatives now feast on them. As one of the first foods to be cultivated, archaeologists have found evidence of figs from 10,000 years ago, before wheat, barley and vegetables. Chimps even use their fingers and thumbs to squeeze figs and assess ripeness before deciding whether to eat them. On the Japanese island of Okinawa, folk stories feature red-haired wood spirits called Kijimuna that inhabit fig trees. Whilst on Borneo, indigenous peoples prohibit the cutting of strangler figs because of their belief that spirits dwell amongst their roots. Even the Ramayana, a Sanskrit epic written between 400 and 800 BC, reveals a superstitious preoccupation with the plant. I have not cut down any fig tree. Why then does calamity befall me, says Ravana, the story's demon king. Politicians too have prized figs. Athenian statesman Solon made it illegal to export them around 2,500 years ago. And now, the humble fig has become the darling of the internet, the jewel of the farmer's market and Ottolenghi's golden ingredient. They're sliced open and slathered in honey on Instagrammable cheese platters, used in suggestive tattoo designs and brandished as findings of foraging expeditions. These symbols of abundance, fertility and eroticism continue to entice us. We're drawn in by their fleshy sweetness, as our first human ancestors once were. That was Nicole Douglas Morris's essay for Confex Autumn Issue. Martella, what roles do figs play in your memory? Oh, I love fig and fig trees and have a beautiful story to tell you. Travelling by bike has an aspect that no motorbike or car can compete with. You can smell the landscapes you cross. So I remember a beautiful bicycle tour in early summer in Sardinia. There was a plain with fields and many, many fig trees. The intense scent on the quiet country road was absolutely unique and absolutely unforgettable. And Gillian, I imagine that September is a time for this bounty of figs, certainly in the Mediterranean. But tell me about figs in your in your diet. <laughs> well, just only days away in um, Eureka, all the figs were ripe and they were literally plopping off the trees. And now I feel so guilty. I've always loved figs, but really, I think I've underestimated. Reading that essay there, I found it fascinating 
and thought-provoking through history, all the symbolism of figs and its long, long history and heritage. And that's what I love about your essays in Conflict, because it really turns something inside out, almost an everyday object or something ubiquitous that we just take for granted. And then you just start digging away in this poetic way in these essays that really make you think about something like figs in a completely different way. I've been reflecting, because there's a fig tree in my garden, which is actually running completely wild, which they do. And it has figs because we're in Britain. They don't ripen in the same way they do in Mallorca. But I've been reflecting so much on it because, you know, Nicole and I talked a lot about the commissioning of the essay. And then, you know, this idea of essentially prehistoric man living off figs and this idea that they are one of the first things to kind of sustain humanity and then they also are sort of written into the Bible and so many religious traditions. When you take one in your hand, sometimes when you know all of that and more, you think, wow, (laughs) it tastes slightly different. (laughs) And then you feel guilty dribbling your honey and pairing it with your mascarpone cheese because it's really, it's about so much more. I don't ever feel guilty. And what I love in France when you have a kind of amazing kind of roquefort and then it comes (laughs) with figs and the fig jam, that wonderful sense of contrast, it makes me feel like eating more of them. (laughs) And then just thinking about history as I do it. So that's the indulgence here. (laughs) The art of appreciation. Well, that's all we have time for on this episode of Confect Corner. My thanks to Gillian DeBias and Marcella Palak. Confect Corner is produced by Colotta Ribello and Isabella Jewell and edited by Christy O'Grady. If you have a story, suggestion or simply want to say hi, you can reach Carlotta at audio at confectmagazine.com. We'll be back next month with more. But until then, from me, Sophie Grove, goodbye and thanks for listening. Listener.